You'll notice that we're going to look at the same text that we did last week, verses 16 through 41. But this morning, I'm just going to read a section of that from 33, starting in verse 33 down to verse 41. Mark 15, I'll read verses 33 through 41. Beloved, I would remind you, what I'm about to read you is a portion of a letter from home. This is from God to you. It's real. It's true. He has breathed it out. Let's receive it that way. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word to study. You have given us your word to explain our lives, to explain reality, to impact and change us. God, I ask in particular today, I know you can do whatever you want to do, and you will, and it will be good and right. But I ask that you would work in our lives to such an extent that we might leave here delighting in you that we would really rejoice and delight in who you are and what you have done and not only that but that we would realize that Jesus Christ is our reward Lord we are tempted to think all the time that there are other rewards for us other than Jesus and Lord, in our weak moments, we have a tendency to think that we can use Jesus to get other things that we really want. And all that is wrong. Would you convince us today that we need to delight in you and that having Jesus and in Jesus having us, we have everything and there's nothing greater than belonging to him. We pray this, Holy Spirit, depending on you, we pray this because you have power and you love to pour the love of your Father into our hearts and souls. So do it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, get glory this morning. Amen. Here we are. We're at the end. We're at the end of Jesus' life. We just read this section and Jesus is dying and he's dying. We're at the very end. 
As you might know, if you were here last week, we looked at this exact same passage and we're looking at it again. This is part two. And in order to understand these verses that we're looking at this morning, in particular 33 to 41, I want you to know that there is a slogan that is kind of a statement. It's a statement. It's a slogan. Uh, it has been around for a long, long time. As a matter of fact, the church has used it at different times throughout history to explain not only the message of the Bible, but also to explain its own life and its own existence. The truth is this slogan, this statement is not just a summary of the Bible. It's not just a summary of the message of the Bible. It's actually meant to summarize our lives. And I'm going to use it this morning to explain this passage. So here's what I want you to take away. Here's what we've got to get into. Here's how you'll know if you understand this passage. After darkness, light. After darkness comes light. That's the whole message of the Bible. It's the whole message of the gospel. It's the message of our lives if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. After darkness, light. Now what that means is that if we're going to understand this message, we've got to go where we might not have thought we needed to go this morning. What that means is, if you'll join me, we've got to dive in to the darkness. And it might not be pleasant. It might not be what you were expecting. It certainly is not going to be entertaining. But it will be true. Let's dive into the darkness. Remember that Jesus has been tried by two courts. Jesus has been tried by the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. Jesus has been tried by the Roman court. Jesus has been sentenced. Jesus has been sentenced to die. Jesus has been sentenced to die the death by crucifixion. Not only that, but Jesus has been slapped in the face. He has been mocked. He has been spit upon. He has been punched. He has been made fun of. He has been abused. And we find him this morning here at the cross, on the cross, and it's not just that he has been mocked by people slapping him and punching him and spitting on him. It's that everyone has been mocking Jesus. If you look at verse 20 of this chapter, chapter 15, verse 20, you find that those who were to take care of Jesus actually played dress up with him. They mocked him by playing dress up. If you look at verse 29, you'll find that those who passed by Jesus as he was hanging on the cross, they also derided him and made fun of him. If you look at verse 30, the religious leaders mocked him and made fun of him. They expressed their mocking and expressed their making fun of him by saying things like, oh, well, we, we've seen him save all kinds of people, but he can't save himself, apparently. Or if, if Jesus, if you would just come down from the cross, if you would just get off the tree, we would see it with our eyes and we would actually, we would believe. We would believe. If you look in verse 32, it tells you that those who were condemned to die in the same way that he was, the one, the man on his right and the man on his left, they too derided and mocked the Lord Jesus. Your Savior, your King, your Lord. Verse 40, which we read. 
again this week. We find that the women are there at the cross. These were women who came to Jesus when he entered Jerusalem. They were women who in other accounts uh, encouraged Jesus. They gave of their resources so that Jesus could minister. And Mark makes it very clear in verse 40 that these women now who used to be so close with him are now at a distance. You realize that we mock by also staying at a distance from what's true, right? We looked at that in some detail last week. And then if that wasn't enough to get a picture, if that wasn't enough to dive into the text itself, look at verse 33. Darkness. Yes, it is supernatural. It is supernatural. This is not an eclipse of the sun. This is real, real, real darkness. In the Bible, God oftentimes gives us the picture of darkness to display for us our own spiritual condition. Darkness indicates the condition of our heart, that we are rebellious. Darkness is what's really wrong with us. We're rebellious in our hearts. We are cold toward God and cold toward other people. The idea of love that we think we have outside of God is just this vague, vague, uh, vague uh, uh, surface-y kind of emotion. It's not real love. It's not biblical love. We are in darkness. And the truth is, is that when we read this text and think about it, there is a convergence here. On the one hand, the master plot of hell is coming to fruition. Satan has been busy at work to accomplish what he wants. And not only is the master plot of hell displayed for you here, but actually it converges with the justice of God. So that on the cross, as Jesus was entering the darkness, it is darkness because all that Satan can muster is there. And all of God's justice is there. And they meet. And if you know your Bibles a little bit more, you realize that God is behind all of this. Overpowering to display His love and His glory. Jesus enters into our darkness, and it's so dark, it's so dark at the cross, that Jesus is literally lost. It's If you don't understand the darkness, and if you're not willing to dive into this, then you will never understand verse 34. If you don't get the darkness, you will never understand. It is so dark. In Jesus' experience, it is so dark that he actually cries out, verse 34 tells you, My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus is experiencing the loss of the Father's love. He has no sense of it at this moment. He, he's in a dark place. Have you been there? One of our forefathers in the faith says this. When we behold, when we look upon the disfigurement of Jesus on the cross, and we are appalled at his marred body, let us remember afresh that when we look upon Jesus on the cross, we really are looking upon ourselves 
because He stood in our place. Beloved, it doesn't get any darker than that. No one has ever obeyed like Jesus. No one has ever, no one has ever trusted like this man. No one has ever endured like this man. No one. Ever. Pretty dark, isn't it? It's pretty dark. But I want you to know that following the darkness comes light. And I want you to see that the light begins immediately as Jesus breathes his last breath. Verse 38 just absolutely rushes at us. Jesus in verse 37 breathes his last and dies. And look at verse 38. The light begins to dawn. The light is there. Look, listen, think about. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus breathes his last and the curtain comes down. Even tells you that it's torn from top to bottom. There's no human being that could tear apart this curtain. No one could do it. It was a supernatural act of God. What's really fascinating about this is that there's only one other time in Mark's Gospel where he uses this word torn. It takes you all the way back to chapter 1. It takes you all the way back to when Jesus was baptized. And as he was coming out of the water, the heavens were torn open. And then the Father yells out this amazing declaration. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Do you remember that? And I don't expect you to remember this, but if you might as I say it. Back when I was young, I used to love spending time with my dad. I have a very close relationship with my dad. And on Sundays after we would attend worship, we would eat together and then we'd come home and oftentimes on Sunday afternoon we would often relax in the living room, which oftentimes turned into a nap. Dad would lay down on the floor and I would always make sure that when I saw Dad do that, that I would get to the floor quicker than my brother. What that meant is there were times when I would shove him out of the way because I wanted to get down on the floor with my dad and I wanted to be on my dad's left side. I wanted to put my head against his chest because I wanted to hear his heart. And there were times where I would even hear my dad's heart and I would listen to him breathe and I would try to breathe in exactly the same rhythm that he would because I wanted to be like my dad. And I love my dad. And you see, when God rends the heavens and makes this declaration, this is my beloved son, what you're getting is your father's heart. And you might have had a horrific experience with your earthly father. You might not even know who he is. But let me tell you, your heavenly father is perfect. And because of His Son and what His Son was going to do, He loves you. 
And God wants us to make this connection in our mind that at Jesus' baptism, as the Father would declare, this is my Son and I love Him. He wants you to understand here at Jesus' death, His death tears apart the veil. You see, that veil was to keep you out from being close with God. The veil didn't keep you from knowing God. The veil didn't keep you from understanding God. But the veil kept you out from being close with God. There was only one man, one time of the year, who was able to peer behind the veil, enter behind the veil on behalf of God's people to offer the sacrifice for sins. But you know what happens? At the cross, that veil is torn that veil doesn't exist anymore. And what it means is that you and I have free access to the Father, full access to the Father, and intimacy with Him. It means that the moment that Jesus died, that veil was torn, and there is now access to the Father. What that means is that it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you haven't done. It means that you can be close with God, the God of the universe, and that you can know His intimate, life-changing love because His Son died in your place. You see, on the cross, Jesus was refused intimacy with the Father. On the cross, Jesus was refused access to God. That's why he cries out, why? And there's no answer. He was refused intimacy so that you could have it. He was refused access so that you could have it. That's why the veil was torn. Do you see? The light leads us to God. Well, maybe that didn't connect in any way. Maybe that's way too abstract. Maybe God anticipated that we wouldn't get it. So he gives us verse 39. It's not just that the curtain is torn. It's not just that we have free access now. It's that God tries to get it into us. Listen to this in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him, don't you love that? In verse 37, you got Jesus breathing his last and dying. In verse 38, you've got an image of what that means if the curtain is torn. And then you've got the centurion back at the cross, literally standing and looking at Jesus as he breathes his last. Isn't that amazing to think about? He's looking at Jesus, standing there, looking at him. And then something happened. Something happened to the centurion. He makes this declaration, truly, this is the Son of God. Now again, that might not seem all that spectacular to you. You might think, oh well, yeah, bystander, witness, okay. This is historical, alright, get all that, true. Oh no, there's far more. It's not less than that, but it's far more than that. You see, a centurion is someone that we would identify as somewhat of a blue-collar worker. He would get this position because of all of his experience and his work ethic. 
More than likely, the centurion was put in charge of the squad that oversaw all the executions. The centurion was a soldier who had worked his way up the ranks, if you will. It had nothing to do with his education. It had nothing to do with his family status. It had nothing to do with his financial resources. He was a hard-working man. And his professional life, if you will, consisted of observing people die. Killing people. Going to war. Being placed over and being put in charge of watching people being executed. I don't know about you, but perhaps you'll realize and recognize that the more we do our jobs, the more that you do the same thing every other week, the more calloused you get. You know that? It doesn't have to be that way, but we just kind of get into a routine, right? We just kind of expect things to always work this way, and over time we get more and more calloused. That temptation is always there. We don't have to be calloused, but it oftentimes happens. This guy had watched people die over and over and over and over again. More than likely, he was extremely calloused from all that he saw. I don't know about you, but I haven't watched a whole lot of people breathe their last. I've been with a few people who have died in my presence. And you know what it's like when you're in those situations that are very complex and very difficult and they take a lot out of you emotionally. This guy had watched people die over and over and over. More than likely, he was a very hard man. He had a very thick skin. He was probably emotionally very, very, very guarded. He was used to seeing people die. But there was something that happened here. There was something that happened here that changed him. And it was the way that Jesus died. Listen again. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. It's Jesus' death that brings about his confession. He saw something in Jesus and in the way that he died that was unlike anyone else. He saw the manner in which Jesus died, and it pierced through his hardness. It pierced through his deadness. It pierced through. It got in. And he understood that Jesus was not like anyone else that he ever saw die. What's also fascinating about this, and I promise I won't go down this road too long, just to reinforce this to you, that the gospel accounts are amazing to look at and study. Verse 38, remember the idea of torn exists in chapter 1, the only other time it's used? Yeah. Well, this phrase, the Son of God, do you remember how Mark begins? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The exact wording is only found in chapter 1, verse 1, and in chapter 15, verse 39. Maybe this is the climax, the main point of the whole book. That here it is. The last person in the world that you would ever think could understand this. 
He does. He gets it. You think the disciples should get it, but they really don't. If they do, they fumble it all the time, kind of like us. The religious leaders of the day think that Jesus is crazy. They think that he is declaring to be God and declaring to forgive sins, and they want to kill him for it because he's being blasphemous. And here you have the centurion who's lived an experienced life of watching people die and killing people, and he gets it. Is that what you would have thought? It's not what I would have thought. Hmm. Such is our God. Truly, He is the Son of God. And what this means for you is not just, I'm, I'm not just telling you this so you, like your head gets bigger and you just get smarter. That's not the point. This is the point. Your hardness and your emotional ineffectiveness and, and, and emotional absence can be softened. Now, a lot of you ladies are probably really happy about that regarding your husbands. But I want you to know it's for everybody. Your hardness can be softened by looking at the way that Jesus died. Do you understand that? If you are a hard man, if you are a hard woman, if you are a hard child... I want you to understand that there's only one thing in the universe that can make you soft. Now, you might be able to be emotionally manipulated, but the only thing that will truly make you soft is thinking about how Jesus died and why he died. Because, number one, he didn't have to. He wanted to. He died to give you mercy. He died as a substitute in your place. He died to be gracious to you. Doesn't that just turn our world upside down? That someone would love me that much? That he would desire to display his grace and his mercy to this degree that he would suffer what I deserve? That makes our hard hearts soft. Well, no looking at this story of the crucifixion would ever, be, would ever be sufficient. And I'm not saying that anything I've said is up to this point, but nothing in looking at the crucifixion would ever be sufficient if we didn't think about the idea of suffering. We have to think about this together. And yes, you can consider the landing gear is out. We're going to land here. Everyone experiences suffering. You will do it. If you haven't faced suffering yet, you will. If you haven't endured suffering yet, you will. You probably are suffering at some level right now at this very moment. And all of us struggle to deal with it. All of us struggle to deal with suffering. We really don't know how to deal with it, do we? Not really well. And I'm saying that as a declaration that the church doesn't deal with suffering very well. We don't talk about it a whole lot. What people outside the church typically think is, well, if I believe in God, then I can just do away with my suffering and God makes everything better. It's true. Now, I suppose you could look at other religions and look at what they say about suffering, but what they have to say about suffering is pretty bad. You can believe in reincarnation if you want to, but that really doesn't help you in suffering. It just says you just might get to repeat it over and over and over and over and over again. I'm not trying to mock, I'm trying to think. It's true. And if you think that's mocking, just listen to this. And I don't mean it to be mocking. 
We live in a culture, we live in a society that this is the message. This is your best life now. That's why all of us want to get younger and stay younger all the time. We don't want to talk about death. It's a taboo subject in our culture. Dying, taboo subject. We are inundated every day with the thought that this is your best life now. That's why we live in a society that doesn't want to commit to anything. Because we think we might miss out if we don't commit. We might miss out. So we live in this culture that's, it's the air that we breathe, that this is the best life now. And oftentimes the church repeats that. And it's wrong. And I'm sorry if you've been involved in a church or if you have heard that the Christian message is that your best life is now. Because let me tell you, it's not. It's not. And I'm sorry if that's what you've heard, but that's not real. It's not true. We have to think about this. We need to. Two things. I know I need to set the landing gears out. I need to get closer to land. Two things. One is suffering always takes the gospel deep into our lives. Suffering always takes the gospel deep. You see, whenever you suffer, whenever you're going through affliction, whenever there's a trial that's come up, whenever something isn't going the way that you want it to go, it is taking the gospel deep into your life and it's challenging you with this question. Is your joy, is my joy, is Dave's joy connected, exclusively connected just to my circumstances? Whenever you suffer, whenever you go in through a trial, whenever you hit a hardship in your life, and they are here, and they will come, the first question is, it challenges you to think, is my joy exclusively tied to my circumstances? And what the gospel says is there's more. The message of Christianity is that joy is not tied to your circumstances. You see, that's why the response that we so flippantly give in the church to suffering, our response is often, well, uh, you know, smile and, and, and keep going. That's why if you've been burned by the church, that's probably what you've heard. Oh, you're in a hard spot? Well, a real Christian, you just got to smile and just keep going. At other times, you hear things like, well, you just need to believe more, and you can change this circumstance. That isn't real either. You see, our joy is not tied to our circumstances. The message of the gospel is that your joy is, is foundational. It's connected to... It's connected and flows out of this truth that the curtain is torn. Your joy flows out of the truth that you, that you can be known by God and have an intimate relationship with Him and that He is pleased with you and that He loves you and that He will never leave you even in the trial, the hardship, the suffering, and the pain. It means that your joy is not just connected to the fact that the veil is torn, but that Jesus is the Son of God. 
who has lived and died in your place. And He has endured. You see, this challenges us, suffering always challenges us to think about where does our joy come from? Does it come from my circumstances or from the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and the Father accepts me? The second thing is that suffering in accordance with the Gospel confounds the world. And I know that I'm being edgy here, and that's okay. I'm sure that I'll hear it. And you can, you're welcome to talk with me about it this week if, this is, if I'm not articulating myself well, which happens regularly. The Gospel itself in suffering, teaching us how to suffer, doesn't only confound the world. It actually confounds most of Christendom. Beloved, in your suffering, God is not going to send you an email. He's not going to give you a Facebook message. He's not going to give you a pamphlet. He's not going to give you a booklet. And He is not going to give you a book. In understanding your affliction and your pain and your sorrow, God came to earth. Do you understand this? He took on human flesh. He took on suffering Himself. You want to know how to understand this? You, don't want, to know, you want to know why this confounds the world? It's because the living God, the God of the Scriptures, took on human form. He came. He entered in. He has been where you are. He's been there. And what that means is if Christ has suffered for me, I can suffer for Him. What it means is that if He has literally suffered for me, I can suffer for Him. Because Jesus' suffering and His dying, it literally and actually releases power. It actually releases grace so that I can endure and I don't have to put on a smile as if everything's great. And I don't have to tell everybody that I'm doing wonderful. It means when you go through suffering that you can look God in the face and you can say, God, why? How long? How long? And you can know that He's been there. And you can know that Jesus suffered far more than you ever have for you. One of the great leaders, he was not a, he would never want to be called a great man. I don't know why I said that. I, I shouldn't have said he was a great leader because that doesn't matter. He was a regular person who was saved by grace. But he was someone who was thought of very highly in all of the church all over the world. Whenever he died, there were actually memorial services in his home country, several of them in England. There were multiple ones in the United States and Asia and Africa and all over the world. He was a very highly thought of person. His name was John Stott. And when he died in 2011, I have never read a whole lot of Stott, but I read some of him. And one of his most powerful statements to me was when he talked about coming to faith and how he came to faith. This is what he said. I could never believe in God if it wasn't for the cross. 
in a world full of injustice, how could it be possible to worship a God who was immune from it? Christianity is the only faith that says God experienced injustice. Therefore, he understands it and cares about it. Beloved, Christ suffered hell so that you don't have to. And as you go through your life, and as the message of the cross begins to take root in your lives, we will experience suffering. And because of what Christ has done, our suffering means that we will grow. Our suffering indicates that there is meaning to it. Our suffering is really showing us salvation. It's salvific in nature. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us yet another week to look here at the crucifixion. It is sobering to think about the mocking. It is sobering to think about the darkness. But Lord, there is light. And it's not a flippant light. It's deep light that shines deep in our darkness. We thank you that the curtain has been torn. We thank you that Jesus is the Son of God. And we thank you that there is meaning to our suffering. And that we don't have to just get with the program and get stronger to try to change our circumstances. Even though, Lord, you do change our circumstances. We don't. You do. But we thank you that in our suffering we can be reminded that our joy comes from something that is much deeper than our fleeting, changing circumstances. Our joy comes from the fact that we are known and from the fact that our God understands injustice and suffering and pain and agony and that He endured all of that for us. Help us to realize that there is meaning behind and underneath and in our suffering. And help us to understand that our best life is not now. That our best life is in the world to come. Or we will be with you forever. Lord Jesus, thank you that you still have scars. Because they remind us that we will too. And that as yours purchased our redemption, so ours help us understand our redemption. Thank you. Help us to sing the song and mean it. Take our lives, Lord, and let them be consecrated to you and you alone. It's because of Jesus that we would ever begin to even think to say this. Amen.